Our New Testament and sermon text today is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Hear the word of the Lord. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy uh, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we come to sing. We come to join Zechariah in his song of praise to you, Lord. God, would you teach us from your word? Would you guide us and transform us by it? And may we see, God, that you have kept your promises to your people then and your people now and your people forever. It's in your name, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. What is a pinky promise? I bet the children could tell me what a pinky promise is. Right, it's yep, it is when you make a promise and in fact <laughs> when you use your pinky. Why? Why would someone ever want or need to use their pinky? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, right? Because because then you know they really mean it. This if I were to give a very honest adult assessment of the pinky promise, it would be that your word is not trustworthy in and of itself, and you need the power of the pinky, as the kids said, to really ensure that you mean it, to really try your bestest to keep it. It's uh, a wonder that the power of the pinky is not called forth at more weddings, uh, business contracts, or home purchases. But for you this morning, can you remember the first time a promise was broken? If you don't remember the first time, you likely remember the worst time. The peace and security that surrounded your world was broken. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was abuse or a canceled family vacation or mom and dad said everything was going to be okay and it wasn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. We live in an age where we cannot afford to be naive about promises. Advertisements, commercials, billboards, uh, even a classy rebate are all made of promises that are likely to be broken, are too good to be true. Daily, we get scam phone calls, emails, and texts abound. The world is not a safe place. It's a place where bodies, bones, hearts, and especially promises are broken. To be not taken for granted or not be taken for everything you have, including your dignity, you need to be at least savvy, discerning, and shrewd. But instead of those things, we are often left just with chronic suspicion, with doubt, and with cynicism. Will anyone ever totally be honest? Can anyone really ever keep their promises? 
You and I know that we can't even keep the promises we make. So what do we do when we come to a text or we celebrate a holiday as we are here that says all the promises that God has ever made are coming true right here, right now? Is it just more suspicion, more doubt, more cynicism? Or perhaps when I speak of God's promises, it means nothing to you because you don't know that he even made any. Right? This may be true for you this morning if you're unchurched or dechurched or even the underchurch, not having the word of God or the promises taught to you. Our passage today is steeped in promises kept and covenant fulfilled, and it reveals this one central truth. God keeps every promise. God keeps every promise. Now, to start, we need to recap what's led up to our passage in Luke 1. The book of Luke opens with this godly aged couple who are still praying to have a child. You have Zechariah the priest and his barren wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, uh, in many ways, paralleled the state of Israel, not because of their ungodliness, because they were godly, um, but they were in need of, just like Israel, uh, divine intervention in some way, right? Israel was captive to Rome's rule, and it was evidenced by a puppet king, Herod. Well, onto that scene, an angel, Gabriel, the one who stands in God's presence, came and said, Zechariah, your prayers for a son are going to be answered. And better yet, that son is going to have the same Holy Spirit and power that was in the great prophet or the Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Your son will ready a sinful people and will prepare the way for the Lord himself to come. Zechariah knows the promises of God, but is too cynical or weak to believe and is made mute and likely deaf as well right then. But God still keeps his promise. Elizabeth conceives. Luke begins with this impossible event to remind us of God's promise and fulfillment to another aged couple, the, one, the ones we just read of a moment ago, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. And in verses 57 to 66, Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful to name their newborn son John. And at that moment, Zechariah's deafness and his muteness were immediately ended. And he praised God, and everyone in the region that heard of it began to ponder, verse 66, what then will this child be? Perhaps you're wondering this morning, Pastor, isn't it Christmas tomorrow? Right? Isn't Christmas about the birth of Jesus Christ and not John the Baptist? Well, yes, it is. But for us to wrap our arms and our understanding around what the birth of Jesus Christ means we don't look to nativity scenes or cheesy Christian Hallmark movies or even our favorite Christmas carols to teach us. Instead, we look to the word of God and we look to how he tells the story. And you see the sign, the final sign that the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world was coming was that another promised prophet would come to prepare the way. And Zechariah's song is as beautiful as it is instructive to teach us that the entire Bible all of history was looking forward to this very point. And this is why Zechariah's song, historically called the Benedictus, meaning blessed or blessing in Latin, this is why his song reveals to us that God keeps every promise. So you must praise God today for his promises kept while you wait for them to become sight. 
Well, in our first point, we see that you can't praise God for promises that you don't know or you have forgotten. Our first point emphasizes that you must, or we must learn and know. We must remember God's promises. Otherwise, we won't praise them when they do become sight. From verses 68 to 75, we see that Zechariah is somewhat briskly uh, showing us that all of the Old Testament is telling one story. By the Holy Spirit, he is saying, all the stories we've been told, all the legends of the scriptures we've heard, all the too good to be true type promises that God gave, right here, right now, they're coming true for us. If you look there in the passage, do you notice all the we's, the hours, and the for us's in the text? You see, the Bible is not a therapeutic story, or it's not an allegory, right, about something, some deeper meaning we have to mine out. No, it's about personal and historical promises, promises of salvation from God to a people that he's covenanted with, and that those promises are being made sight. Now, at the very center of this whole passage is verses 72 and 73, which say that God is showing the mercy that he had promised to their ancestors, remembering this holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, right? We just read about this and discussed this in our Advent reflection that uh, in Genesis 12, that, uh, or Genesis 17 rather, that I will be a God to you and to your offspring after you, right? It meant blessing Abraham with a son and then with a people. And then also that they'd be in a place and they'd, they'd have the very presence of God. And that ultimately, these blessings were to be a blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham. We'd even notice here that the language of verse 68 and 75 is steeped in Exodus-type language, right? Visited, redeemed, delivering from enemies, all to do what? To serve God without fear. This was the very thing that Moses went and said to Pharaoh, that God told him to say that they'd be able to go out to, as a people to a particular place and have the presence of God among them, that they'd serve God there without fear. Well, Zechariah's song names, even in verse 69, a horn, which is a, a sign of power, a horn of salvation that would come from the very house or family of David. Remember again, the, the promises continued to and through King David that one of his sons would rule forever as king and would be God's own son. See, finally, God's people will be in a place with God's presence there. But that presence will be mediated through who? Through God's own son who reigns as king. You see, Zechariah is revealing the mural of God's promises from the beginning to Abraham, through Moses, to David. And he doubles down in case we have any doubt, saying in verse 70 that all the holy prophets of old, all spoke of verse 71 of this salvation from enemies. So why is this so important? Well, it is in God keeping these promises that we see what the aim of all of this is. Verse 74 and 75. Note these, these two, uh, what these two verses pluck here, or what they're pointing out. The aim of the promises is to produce a people able to serve. We could also use the word worship there. That's the word to serve in the Old Testament of avad in the Hebrew is, is aimed at worship. 
It's that it would produce a people able to worship, to be with God without fear. Fear of destruction or right repercussions for constant sin. How could a people who are at best ignorant or forgetful of God's promises or at worst cynical and unbelieving of them ever be able to come to God without fear? Well, it's because the horn of salvation, the promised Messiah, the son of the most high, Mary's little lamb, if you will, it's because he will come after Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. He, Jesus, will come and give his very holiness and righteousness to those who believe in him. For all who trust in Jesus Christ, living, dying, and rising again, Ephesians 4.24 says that they, or you, will put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in, hear this, in true righteousness and holiness. How about that? Faith in Jesus Christ clothes you with what you need to be able to worship God all your days without fear, righteousness, and holiness. But pastor, isn't this only for Abraham's ethnic descendants, right? You know, Israel, Jews, he's saying we, he's speaking of them, is he not? Well, the Apostle Paul clears this up in Galatians 3.7. It's in a number of places he does throughout the New Testament. But Galatians 3.7 is a, a very pointed text where it says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We, even here in this room, must not be ignorant or forgetful of the promises of God, for they were not only to Abraham, but even for us, for us who have faith in Jesus Christ, that we here in this time would be his people in a particular place where he promises to be among us by the Holy Spirit, and that in that same way, his presence would be here in our worship. Many in the U.S. have grown up loving a, a story that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, <clears throat> in 2015, movie theaters failed to watch the Luke Skywalker saga uh, continue with episode 7, The Force Awakens. Well, in one scene, a new character, Rey, having grown up hearing the stories of the Jedi, the Sith, you know, the, the fantastical world that accompanied them, she asks an older character, Han Solo. She says, the Jedi were real? And Han Solo replies, I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo jumbo. The crazy thing is, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it. It's true. In that moment, Ray is hearing Han Solo say, that story is this story. This story is our story. See, in the church, we need a Ray-like moment. Zechariah's song is saying it's true, all of it. That story of the Old Testament, the prophets, the promises, the presence of God among his people, that story is this story. And this story is our story. 
Now, perhaps you've grown up outside of the church and the only promise that you've heard from the Bible are the ones I've named for you today, which are good ones to know, the most, uh, the most important, I would argue to you. Or perhaps you're someone who grew up in the church but have left it and its faith, but you somehow still find yourself here today because it's Christmas Eve. Well, why should any of this matter to you? It matters because history is going somewhere. It's not circular. It's not a reincarnated uh, history ongoing in circular fashion. No, God has created you with a heart, mind, mouth, all formed with the aim of praising the one who made you in all things. The God who is the author, the promise maker, and better still, the promise keeper has come. His love, his redeeming is not based on how well you know all of the promises, but rather if you believe in the promised one, Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time, the New Testament says. But knowing and remembering the promises about him will in fact lead your heart, your mind, and your mouth to do what it was made to, what Zechariah does, that is to praise him. This story is your story, whether you want it to be or not, because God will visit us again. History is going somewhere. And he will come to visit either for judgment or for redemption. Redemption for those who've been clothed in Christ and made sons of Abraham through faith. For the Christian here today too, you are not to be ignorant or forgetful of God's promises. You too must learn God's promises by hearing them, meditating on them, praising God for them. Now this chiefly happens when we gather here on the Lord's Day, when we worship with one another. Certainly it happens at home in your personal study. It happens at home in family worship. But in the coming 2024, ensure that you come to where the promises are proclaimed, where we taste them here, where we see them in part become sight among the fellowship. And as we wait together for them to become fully made sight. Well, from verses 76 to 79, there's a clear shift in Zechariah's prayer. He's still emphasizing that God keeps every promise. But here we see that if we are cynical or unwilling to trust him or his promises, we will not be able to praise him for salvation or receive a life full of peace. Now, um, it's no secret that Israel was waiting for a political salvation by a King David, a, a warrior-like savior, one who would deliver them from, from foreign and physical enemies like Rome. But do you see what Zechariah clarifies about this salvation in verse 77? He's showing it's not wrought by weapons of war or by spilling enemies' blood. Rather, it's salvation by the forgiveness of of sins. Hebrews 9:22 says there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. It's just that the blood shed will not come from Israel's political enemies. Rather the shed blood will come from the promised one, Jesus Christ, the one who follows after Zechariah's son John the Baptist. And so Zechariah, looking at his newborn son, says, And you, child, will be the prophet of the Most High. All the neighbors thought, for this uh, aging couple, for Zechariah, of course, they will not have another child. And we, we, we must name this child after his father. 
That's a, a, a normal custom in that time. And Zechariah's name even means the Lord has remembered. Wow, how fitting is that? But this message of salvation for the forgiveness of sins is rightly going to be proclaimed instead by a prophet named John. And that's because the name John means God is gracious. Verse 76, this John, John the Baptist, will prepare the way for the Lord. He'll do this by proclaiming a baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 78, he's sent to do this because of the tender mercy of God. Now, the word for tender here could also be translated as bowels or intestines of mercy. Now, that sounds strange to us, but what it's getting at is that, uh, that all of this, God's desire to show mercy, flows from his inward desire, his, his most inward desires. It's not that he doesn't also desire to be shown as just or show judgment, but that this comes from his tender mercy, his inward, most inward desire to show mercy. In verses 78 to 79, Zechariah's song emphasizes who it is that is coming. If you look at those two verses, the language there in the verses is drawn directly from, from Malachi and from Isaiah. Now, as it speaks of a sunrise, it's not so much that it's speaking of this abstract or, or, or not abstract, but physical sunrise, but rather it's speaking of a dawning one. How do we know that? Because it's talking about this sunrise or dawning one coming from on high, which means heaven, and visiting, visiting his people for redemption, like verse 68 had said at the start. The dawning one, the sunrise, is Jesus Christ coming. Because verse 79 is directly fulfilling Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, which promised that a people who dwelt in darkness would see a great light. What would be that great light? It would be a son who would be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So what is the fruit of those who believe and have confidence in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Right, The ones whom his light shines upon? Verse 79 shows it will be to guide their feet, their walking, their living in the way of peace. We in our day have such a weak view of peace, right? We can think it's the absence of war or of anxiety or honestly of just people leaving us alone. Ah, peace. But it's not that. It's wholeness. It's fullness, completeness, right? The world and your soul restored. That's the peace that this is referring to. So verses 76 to 79 in sum is Zechariah joyfully telling his newborn son of the merciful mission that he will partake in as the prophet of the Most High, preparing the way for the Lord whose dawning will shine light on all those in the darkness of sin, of death, and of the devil's reign. And this will be for their salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. And for we who believe in the dawning one, Jesus Christ, it is for the forgiveness of our sins as well. Verse 80 wraps up the same way this section began and mentioning the, or in saying that the spirit of God will, uh, is what John will become strong in. 
And he will uh, continue to be strong in that and preach or until his ministry of preaching begins. Well, the promises in this song are glorious, but for you and I today, it may feel nearly impossible to savor them, to trust them as really true. Why? It's because our lives, our experiences of others, or even our own tendencies have taught us that if a promise sounds too good to be true, it is. Jonathan Swift, the Irish author, clergyman, and the writer of Gulliver's Travels says, promises and pie crusts are made to be broken. Edmund Fuller, a 20th century American editor and critic says, when a man repeats a promise again and again and again, he means to fail you. Perhaps your own cynicism over promises is honest enough even to reach to yourself. And perhaps you, you think like Napoleon Bonaparte, who said, the best way to keep one's word is not to give it. Is this what God is like? Are his promises like pie crust? Does he keep making the same promises over and over and over again because he intends to fail them or to fail you? Well, Christian, you who have grown up in the church, I speak to you specifically, you who have studied the Bible, who can tell me the correct answers and might even wear shirts that say things like keep Christ in Christmas, have you become cynical, doubtful of God's promises being true? Have your own failings or others trained you to doubt his promises? Certainly if a man like Zechariah, who is a priest who knew God's promises, could have an angel stand in front of him and, and promise him a son and still be cynical and doubt it, then so can you, so do you. In truth, though, your problem of cynicism and unbelief is because you think God is more like a man and not like God. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Christian or non-Christian here, you can believe the promises of God for deliverance from enemies, freedom to worship without fear because God, not man, has promised and has fulfilled salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. You can and must turn from cynicism and unbelief because God is not a man. No, he keeps his promises always. And if you believe him, you will receive not only forgiveness, but you will receive a life of true peace, of fullness, of security in whatever may come. Believing and having confidence in the promised one will produce peace and, like Zechariah, an ability to praise God today for his promises. In closing, uh, there was a, another John in history, John Bunyan, uh, that a few days before his death, he published the first edition of his autobiography in 1765. It was called uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Well, Bunyan writes of his own struggle, fearing salvation could not be his due or he could not uh, deserve it, right, due to his former sin, his, his lack of, of ongoing uh, unholiness and, and unrighteousness. And that he said it was as if he heard every voice saying that he deserved fire, fire. He said, one day while walking through a field experiencing this, a sentence fell upon my soul. 
That sentence was, thy righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is in heaven. Bunyan said, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Bunyan records the joy of seeing God's grace in love, his tender mercy, all the way home. Consider Zechariah one final time. None of us have had our own doubt and cynicism leave us mute and deaf for nearly a year. But when Zechariah's mouth was opened, did he sing of his own righteousness, right? To, to name John as he was commanded to. No, of course not. His righteousness was coming in the sunrise with the dawning one visiting from on high, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one whom all of our righteousness is found in. Like John Bunyan, Zechariah's prayer was of the salvation that came only through that faithfulness and righteousness of Christ. Not of Zechariah, not of John Bunyan, not yours, not mine. See, God is the one who keeps every promise. So you can praise him today while you and I wait for Jesus to make all those promises sight. We pray as they prayed. We pray as we sung, O come, O come. Emmanuel, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are a people so prone to forget, so prone to be ignorant and to remain ignorant of your promises. We are thankful that though we forget, you never do. Though you repeat your promises and we don't trust you, they still come true. Lord God, give us the faith to trust you. Lord God, help us to look not to our own righteousness, but to yours and not only to the righteousness that comes through Christ, but that, uh, that they come with the certainty of your promises being fulfilled, the ones that were fulfilled when Christ came the first time and the ones that will be made sight when he comes the second. In Christ's name we pray, amen.